0: Friends, we're in Genesis chapter 1, and as you turn there, I remember being a brand new believer, and my least favorite part of Bible study was when the leader would say, turn in your Bibles to Acts or John or Philippians, and not knowing where that was, and panicking as everybody else is flipping like they know exactly where that is, praise God we're on page (laughs) 1. Bring your kids, bring your friends, bring your family, everybody can find it, page 1 of the Bible. That's where we are, where it all begins. And I'm going to read for us, starting in verse 14, days four, five, and half of six. So next week when we come back, we're going to argue about whether these were six literal days or a framework. We'll do all that next week. But today, we're just going to dwell in these three days and see what God is doing here. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. to rule over day and over night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the 4th day. And God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Let's pray. It was good. It is good. Because you are good. You are the creator of this universe. It is the house in which you choose to dwell. And as your guests, let us respond to you by knowing you more deeply, loving you more thoroughly, worshiping you with heart, soul, mind and strength we ask in Jesus name amen Genesis 1 is a big deal I hope you have gotten that in January and February as we de- dwell here this is a this is a big deal Genesis 1 is a world shaping chapter the way we view this world what we think all of this is why we think we're here what we think we're doing in this space how we view the world of course is going to shape how we live in the world. If I see the universe as a dark, dead end, that this is all there is, that will shape my life. I will not have a discernible purpose in my life. If I see this as a place of chaos where anything can happen, then I am waiting for the next foot of the universe to fall, and I live in fear in this space. If I see the world as a place of pleasure, then that's what I'm doing with my life. I'm waiting for the next comfort, the next pleasure, and this is my God, and this is how I order my life. But Genesis 1 is rejecting all of those descriptions, and instead it is telling us that the world is God's house of glory and hospitality. The universe is God's house of glory and hospitality. He made it, he chooses to live inside of it, it shows off his glory, and it is a place for his hospitality. We're going to see all of that as we march through these few days. So let's start with God's house. You know, of course, God wasn't homeless before he made the universe. We already saw this, that before anything was made, God dwelled in perfection. He was the triune God, perfectly content within himself, one God in three persons. But by his design, when he makes the universe, he chooses to stoop down and describe himself as living in it for our benefit. That's why he can say in places like Psalm 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I'm here. Or Isaiah 40. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Psalm 104. You're clothed with splendor and majesties, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. You read the Psalms and the prophets and this picture emerges that a God who doesn't need anything, he certainly doesn't need a chair Or a footstool, or clothes, or food, says that this is a place that he has made, and it's a place where he will live in as his home. As one writer puts it, Yahweh does not construct a house of brick and mortar, but of earth and sky. Creation is God's cathedral. This is his house, this is where he lives and chooses to to move to know us. So we see that as this house, but what, what kind of house is it? What's happening inside of this house? I was joking with friends a while back about all the things that parents say that annoy their kids, right? The moment I say that, you know in your mind a list of things that your parents would always say to you, and you say, I swear I'll never say this to my kids, but stuff like, well, you can't be good at everything, or if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you? Or you'll understand this when you're older, or fair is a weather condition, you know, all of these things that just grate your skin. But the ultimate parental throwdown is this. My house, my rules. My house, my rules. I hated... When my parents said that, and I love saying that to my kids, (laughs) I'm paying the mortgage here. If you want to chip in, you can make a rule, but this is my house and we're going to do things my way. Well, we just heard that the universe is God's house and God is telling us in his word, my house my rules, and the first one he lays down is, there will be no other gods before me. Genesis 1 isn't just creative, it's combative. It's not just telling us something pretty, it's picking a fight with anyone or anything that would try to counter God. We're not just hearing what God makes. We're hearing everything that God has authority over. Now, remember how and when this is being written. This is chiefly by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, from Moses to the people of Israel, right as they are leaving slavery in Egypt. So that's kind of the context. That's where they're coming out of. That's where this discipleship manual is being handed to. And we know that Israel had lived 400 years in oppressive slavery in Egypt with a completely different worldview populated by different gods, different rules, different commands, different rituals, different festivities, different things to do, to live, and to move. And that does something to a person. You spend 400 years in one place hearing one thing day after day and that does something to you and your kids and your grandkids and your entire community. That shapes you in a very different direction. Remember what Snoop Dogg taught us, right? You can take the kid out the hood but you can't take the hood out the homie, right? Right? He taught us that. So whenever you see Snoop Dogg on daytime television, on The View, you know the kid is out the hood, but the hood is not out, of the, he's still there. That's the same that's true of Israel. You can take Israel out of Egypt in body. I mean, you can, you can move them to a new place, to the promised land, and there they are in their bodies, living in a new geographical location, but it's not so easy to take Egypt out of their hearts that's going to take a life of discipleship you have always ever only done it this one way and now I'm telling you we're going to do it this way that's a life of discipleship that's why Moses pleads with the people of Israel at the end of his five books this is the beginning but at the end in Deuteronomy chapter 4 it's like he begins and he ends these five books with the same idea. Because when I read Deuteronomy chapter 4, I want you to think about what I just read in Genesis chapter 1, when Moses pleads with Israel, beware lest you act corruptly by making carved images for yourself, in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to the heaven. and When you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Wash out. Moses pleads with Israel not to do this because she grew up only ever seeing people do this. That's all she ever knew. And so when we get our minds around this context that Israel has been discipled in one direction into worshiping creation, then we understand more clearly why Genesis 1 is trying to set the record straight to say, no, we're going to do things differently. We're worshiping in this direction. Take day four, for example. This is a perfect example of the combative nature of Genesis chapter one. Day four is verses 14 to 19, when God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, Israel is living in a world where people worship the sun and the moon and the stars. They've been in Egypt. Egypt worships the sun god Ra. They're surrounded by Babylonians. They worship the stars as deities. They feared the stars. They knew that the stars directed human action and had sovereignty over people, and they feared what the stars could do. So when God tells how he created the world, does he give any deference at all to these deities? No, he doesn't. He doesn't even name them. Look at verse 16. He doesn't even say sun or moon. He says, instead, the greater and the lesser lights, I've made them, and then I gave them a job to do. They're like errand boys. I want them to go out and keep the days and keep the seasons and keep the signs for the people. I've got a job for them to do. And then at the end of verse 16, those stars that were so feared by the known world at that time is just an afterthought in the creation account. I made these big lights and then, oh yeah, I made some stars too. Moving on. Now, from where I sit in the 21st century and what we know about stars, I want a lot more detail about the stars. I mean, this is incredible. what we know and how big they are and how far away they are and how many there are. I want to know about the stars. I was sitting with my dad at a basketball game this week. He's an accountant and he just says stuff like this. But he said, you know, we know about one trillion trillion stars. That's how many stars we think there are. One trillion trillion. That's one with 24 zeros. And we can't get our minds around that so a visual is helpful. Like... Imagine every star, these great gaseous balls that are bigger than the sun. Every one of them was a grain of sand. Imagine how many grains of sand you can fit in your hands and extrapolate that to stars. And then imagine how many grains of sand would fit in the back of your pickup truck and how many stars that represents. But then imagine if you filled this sanctuary with sand and how many stars that would be, but we're not even close yet. You fill the United States of America, nine feet deep in sand, and that's how many stars we think we know about. That's unbelievable. I don't want a phrase about stars. I want chapters and chapters. I want a book of the Bible dedicated to stars. I want to know some more about the stars. But when you realize what Moses is doing and who he's speaking to, this ain't the place to wax eloquent about the Milky Way. We don't need more esteem for the stars in Israel's worldview. We need less. And so God gives it less. I made a bunch of things. And yeah, I made some stars. And then I made some other stuff. That's what you get. And the stars immediately Get put in their place. Genesis to Revelation has taught us about the human heart that anything man can worship in the created world, he will worship in the created world. Whatever could possibly be worshiped, we will find a way to worship it. Sun, moon, stars, sea, high places, money, sex, power, ourselves, if it is there, we will worship it. And so built into the the framework of creation in Genesis chapter one on day one is that God is God and nothing else is. He stands apart from any other deity. It's God's house, it's God's rules. There are no other gods and everything magnifies his glory. Everything shines his glory. Now God's house is like my house and that is everybody's got a job to do, right? We don't have any freeloaders in my house. Everybody's that's there, they got a job to do. You're taking out the trash, you're getting the chicken eggs, you're mowing the lawn, you're doing something. My house, you got to get busy and that's what God's house is like. Everything here in this universe has a job to do and that job is this, to magnify the glory of God. If you're here, if you're in this universe, if you're a star, if you're a sun, if you're a planet, if you're a sparrow, if you're an atom, you have a job to do to magnify the glory of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 89, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see the stars who created these, who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by his greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Everything in my house has a job to do. Everything turns its worship and its praise back to me in its beauty and its goodness and its truth. So this universe is God's house and we learn right away it's God's house of glory because there are no competing deities and night and day every element shouts that this God is more beautiful than we can comprehend. This is God's house of glory. But it's not only God's house of glory, it's also God's house of hospitality. Now, everything I just said in the first two-thirds of the sermon came right out of the Bible, and you can't say this anywhere in our culture today. We have utterly rejected this idea. And to begin to say that, that God would come first and me as a human being would come second, that is preposterous in our culture, right? I can't say that in the public square. I can't say that in school. I can't say that on social media. I can't say that in the workplace, that God is first and I am second. I would be laughed out of those spaces, And praise God, we're not in any of those spaces right now, so we can come up for a breath of air and get some clarity on the thing. While our entire culture is asking the believer, What is God that you are mindful of Him? We're actually asking the opposite from Psalm 8 when I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place all here on day four of creation, what is man that you are mindful of him? Do you even think of us? Like God is so grand, so glorious, so righteous, just, good, true beautiful, magnificent. He's the spirit who's draped in the sun. He spread the heavens like a tent and the earth is his footstool. He is like a consuming fire. Do we even belong in this house of creation to begin with? Are we intruders in this house? Are we uninvited guests? Are we better seen and not heard? What are we even doing here? Well, those questions aren't wrong, but they are met with a surprising answer. Because God says that one of the ways he magnifies his glory is by the loving hospitality he shows to you and me as human beings. Now, I probably missed this the first dozen times I read Genesis 1. But God is clearly creating and describing the universe with us in mind. He is clearly describing and creating with humanity in mind to place here. And that's obvious from the fact that we don't appear on day one. How terrifying to be a human being on day one when all is darkness and space. And so God doesn't do that. He gets everything ready. And actually, that's the whole order of the creation. Days one through three, God is creating habitations. And then days four through six, he's filling them with inhabitants. Did you notice that? So like day one, he creates the light and darkness. Well, corresponding day four, he creates the lights that are in the sky. Day two is the sea and the sky. Day five are the creatures of the sea and the sky. Day three is the earth, the habitation. And then day six are the creatures of the earth. He makes the habitation he gets it ready and then he fills it with the guests who are going to be there and even as he does he explains creation from a human perspective so he's not explaining it might maybe as he would see it Like the one whose tent is his dwelling and he's looking down on humanity as grasshoppers. He could explain Genesis 1 that way. I'm God above and this is what I see. But the entire thing is being described as if we are standing there looking out and seeing everything that God has made. Did you notice that? So the heavens are above. Of course they are. Because here we're standing, looking up at the heavens. This is not God looking down, this is us looking up. The plants are described as trees and as shrubs. That's only meaningful to us who are standing here thinking, yeah, there are trees above me and there are vegetation and shrubs below me. The sun is not described as a fixed point in the solar system, but as we see it, it's going to rise and tell us when it's morning and when it's evening and when it's summer and when it's winter. That's what the sun is going to do for us, the guests who are here. Even the animals are divided into categories that we understand. I'm gonna make some livestock, which you can use and herd and, and, and have, and then I'm gonna make some wild game, and then I'm gonna make creepy crawly things. That's, that's like what a human being would say when they look out over the animals, and that's how God describes them. All of this is from our perspective of what God is making. Now, you ever spend the night at somebody's house who is like an incredible host? And what I mean is like when they welcome you in and you're gonna stay there the night, they tell you everything that's yours, right? They just kind of walk you through the house and say, hey, here's your bedroom. Here's where you're gonna stay. I'll put fresh sheets there. And this is your bathroom that you're gonna use. And here's a towel for you. And here's how you work the remote. And anything in the kitchen is yours. You know, help yourself to the fridge and the cabinets. Anybody stay at a house like that? It's incredible. Everything is at your disposal. That's how Genesis 1 reads. Come here, friend. Come see this. This is, this is the house, and this is what you're going to eat, and this is where you're going to live, and this is what you're going to do, and this is who you're going to have community with, and, and anything you see here, this is yours, and, and please enjoy it while you're here. God is the ultimate host, and he's inviting us into his house. Listen to Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. All of these things are yours. Take them. You need bread, you need some oil. You need some wine, you need some crops, you need some livestock, here it is. Help yourself, the fridge is yours. Take what you need. And when we step back from Genesis chapter one, we are in awe of this God who has made a house that displays his glory and then would welcome us in with gracious hospitality. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have made this house and it is good. It is good. All that is in it is good for you are its creator. And I praise you that it shines forth your glory that anywhere we look, we can then look up and praise you for what you've done. And we thank you that it's a place of hospitality, that you set a table before us, even in the presence of our enemies to enjoy the good things of your creation. And I pray that as we do, taste and see that you are good and you do all things well. Praise you in Christ's name, amen.